Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. All right, our scripture for today is 1 Samuel 1, and it's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me. And not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child. Then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, no, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. And then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. 
And they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Samuel. For she said, I have asked him of the Lord. And the man Elkanah and all his household went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and remain there forever. I will offer him as a Nazarite for all time. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. Do you remember? For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me the petition that I made to him. And therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And she left him there for the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So throughout the pandemic, I have watched a lot of television. Like a lot. I might have finished Netflix, just all of it, completed it. And one of the shows I've become obsessed with is The Crown, the fictionalized, sensationalized story of the British monarchy, beginning with the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Now, I realize that in many ways, the monarchy has no bearing on our lives because we Americans did away with our ties to the crown about 245 years ago. We dumped the monarchy's property, property, if you catch my drift, into the harbor and won the Revolutionary War, and that was that. The world turned upside down, as we see in Hamilton. But the interest in what goes on in Buckingham Palace has waxed and waned over the years, most recently when an American became part of the family a few years ago. And what made this all even more compelling was that not only was it an American, but it was a black American woman who found herself beside a prince at the altar in Westminster Abbey. Not everyone here may be as tuned in as I am with the royal family and how it has unraveled since that beautiful wedding where presiding Bishop Michael Curry, a black American Episcopal priest, preached a beautiful wedding sermon and won all of our non-Episcopal hearts. But let me catch you up. Meghan Markle, a B-list actress from LA, married Prince Harry, becoming the Duchess of Sussex. She's a feminist, she's been outspoken against racial injustice, and she's divorced, which is a big deal in the royal family. And we know that media is brutal, and the paparazzi are relentless in England. We saw how they hunted Princess Diana until the tragic denouement of her death. But the Paps have never had a black member of the royal family before. 
And the UK is not doing much better than we are when it comes to avoiding racist stereotypes, so the press on Meghan has been awful. She shared in an interview with Oprah that it was so terrible that at one point she wanted to end her life. And she pointed out deftly that the British Commonwealth, the holdover of Britain's imperialist policies and colonies around the globe, looked a lot more like her than they did the Queen. So, placing his wife and child first like Prince Charming, Prince Harry decides to step back from his royal duties, his brother having produced the obligatory heirs to the crown anyway. And in a shocking letter, the couple leave their post as extensions of the crown. Lots of family drama ensues, and the public only gets snippets of it because the royal family is a bit of a vault. And now the Sussexes live in the U.S. without any royal duties. And all of this drama has revived a conversation that has been happening in the British imagination for almost a century. Monarchy or no monarchy? I mean, in a world of democracies, is the monarchy relevant anymore? This conversation of monarchical re relevance has been going on for a lot of Queen Elizabeth's tenure. In the 1960s, a monarchy dissenter was eventually hired by the palace to help modernize the monarchy and also quell the dissent. And each generation has had someone to engage the public once again, right? Princess Diana won our hearts but her tragic love story set the public against the once and future king, Prince Charles. And now Meghan's saga has done it for the new generations. But this monarchy debate has been around for a lot longer than the British monarchy. The books in the Bible categorized as history take sides when it comes to the monarchy of Israel. Some are pro-king, some are anti-king. And 1 Samuel wrestles with this debate. But eventually, painstakingly, makes the argument that this monarchy was birthed out of prayer, in miraculous visions, and the hand of God. It blesses the crown and tries to endear the man after God's own heart, King David, to us, despite his many many shortcomings as a man and leader. Give the crown a chance, First Samuel says. So the Israelites, according to the histories, really, really want a king. All the nations have one God. We want one too. And maybe they do need one. Their nation under a set of judges doesn't seem to be going well anyway. The last chapter of Judges details horrific violence, ethnic genocide, and ends with these lines, the very last lines of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right. Now, you have to be reading scripture carefully sometimes to catch the shade thrown around. But this is major shade. The writer of Judges, setting the stage for pro-monarchy writings, essentially says, these people have run amok. It's like a Lord of the Flies out there. Somebody please come rein them in. <laughs> and it is with this backdrop 
of internal conflict and societal upheaval that we finally arrive at our story about not a kingdom, but a family. So we meet the family of Elkanah, whose biblical marriage entails having two wives, Penina and Hannah. Penina has kids from Elkanah. She has produced the heirs, so his lineage will be fine thanks to her. But Hannah doesn't have any children, a source of shame in a culture that demands offspring as a sign of favor from the Lord. And without heirs, Hannah could very well be on the street when Elkanah dies. And Elkanah loves Hannah, and he tells her it doesn't matter if she has children or not, which might sound romantic, but he's clearly not appreciating the precarious state her life would be in when he's gone. And he's also resting in the fact that he's set for life with the aforementioned heirs from Panina. But aside from his obtuseness, we do get that he cares for Hannah. She's not a, beer, a mere baby-making conduit for him. But he doesn't share that affection for Panina. And so she bullies Hannah. Now, to be fair, Panina had done everything right in her culture's eyes. She's the one with children. And yet, she's unfavored and unloved. So we arrive at the scene in Shiloh, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and Hannah is alone, weeping, begging for a child. And the priest, Eli, thinks that this is a case of feminine hysteria, that she must be drunk or something because she's crying, praying, a woman, it's unclear. But they talk, and he predicts Hannah will indeed have a child a male child, and she will dedicate him to the Lord, giving him back to God when he is weaned to be part of the religious order known as the Nazarites. And she does. She has the child she has prayed for. She is set for life, and she hands him back to God to be a prophet. And he will be the prophet who tries to help King David through his many foibles, and he will be the voice of reason for Israel's first stint of monarchy which is a good ending, right? So why does this story have a tinge of sadness to it? I mean, perhaps it is because Hannah is caught up in her culture's narrative that says she has to have a child to complete her, that a male child will solve her problems. And she buys in because it is kind of true in the way that their society is structured, in the way most ancient societies were structured. And like a lot of the testimony of scripture, which is human testimony and witness of the divine, so we're reading an interpretation of what people think God is doing. The narrative of 1 Samuel 1 was that God was the orchestrator of childbearing. And Hannah attributes her barrenness and her fruitfulness to God's hand. And I know it's easy to look back and say, oh, Hannah, you should have known better. You are more than your womb, girl. But we still struggle with this truth. And it's worth mentioning that Hannah is not the first or last woman in Scripture to long and pray for a child and then get one. 
But the many biblical accounts of miraculous pregnancies do not conform to the lived experiences of most people. I would bet this room is probably full of stories of failed pregnancies, years of trying, heartbreak. So it's helpful, I think, in this particular context of pregnancy, of monarchy, of marriage, of faith even, to affirm that these stories that we read are not prescriptive, right? They do not lay out a path to follow uncritically. And they do not promise that with a a little faith and a little Jesus that things will work out. Hannah's culture, like many ancient and modern cultures alike, believed pregnancy that resulted in the birth of a child, hopefully a male child, to be the be-all, end-all of womanhood, to be signs of faith and favor. But there are many valid ways to be a woman and to be a mother and to be a family. And some of those include no children. Some of those include children who do not come from our womb at all. The many incredible women and families in this community of faith represent the varying ways to be a woman, to be a mother or mothering presence, to be a family. And we give thanks for each one. And it may seem extra to pause and say all that. But I take the time because this this story in particular and others like it have been weaponized and hurtful to people who have had a painful journey to motherhood. And I know that statistically, that company is vast. So these are the kinds of pauses that one gets when one has a woman in the pulpit, thanks be to God. So caveat made. I began the sermon talking about monarchies, I think. And yet our story is about a family. And not even the royal family of 1 Samuel, but a person who seems to be a peripheral perspective of 1 Samuel. It's as if we asked about, what's going on with Israel these days? And the writers respond, well, let me tell you a story about a family. It's kind of juicy. Which feels like a familiar move for those of us who hang around Jesus. Like, what's the answer, Jesus? Well, I've got a parable for you. And while this story does give us an origin story of the prophet with miracles and promises and conflict and intrigue, the first half of the chapter is about the anguish of two women. And I wonder if, like Emily said in Children's Moment, if this, the tinge of sadness to this story also stems from the fact that in Hannah's return, there is also a goodbye that in her joy, there is also grief. I mean, we can safely assume that Hannah did not look at her precious baby boy Samuel as a mere retirement plan, that she loved him, that she wanted to be with him, but she had to leave him with a priest who did not have a good track record raising children, and we don't have time for that part of the story, so you'll have to trust me on this one. 
so that even her story about her own personal anguish is commandeered by something bigger, something grander than the family she's in. So if we take a moment and assume that Hannah's return to Shiloh with baby Samuel is not just a mere mollifying assurance that God always answers our prayers, then what is her return about? For us, I mean. I mean, perhaps her return is about the hope of the future of Israel. Perhaps the story is saying, if we can just start things off on the right foot, with clean hands and a pure heart, we might get it right, maybe. But spoiler alert, the kingdom of Israel is a mixed bag at best, and I'm being generous. People are messy, governing is hard. Even Israel had issues with nationalist movements and neglect of its most vulnerable populations. And God essentially says over and over again in the prophets, geez, treat the people inside and outside your borders better. Do better for the love of me. So with our millennia of hindsight, and the rest of the Bible, we know that good intentions and noble beginnings will not a nation keep. But there's something here for us. I just know it. Because I believe the Bible is meaningful and relevant to us, even in the sticky parts. So, of course, God does not give, ev- give us everything we long for. We know that. But I recognize something in Hannah's longing for a child, in Israel's longing for a king, a longing for the world to be made right. Hannah's return to Shiloh had such metaphorical and actual hope for the shifting sands and turning tides of a people. And in her story, we can trust that in ours, Something is being birthed to guide us as a people of God in a precarious world. Perhaps what we are bringing with us in our return is a stubborn belief that one day God will get everything God wants. And we may not see it all happen, but we know that our hope will be rewarded not with how we excel in the ways of our culture, but with how attentive we are to what God is doing in our small story. Here on the corner of Church Street, in a people that knows what it means to pray so fervently that others may find it troublesome. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. 
If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.